Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It is week four of our series, Friends, Brothers, and Others, where we're motoring through a bunch of the rest of the New Testament, which are mainly letters, and the title of the series indicates who the letters are written by. So these letters are either written by friends or followers of Jesus, uh, or as we'll talk about in a couple weeks, a couple brothers of Jesus wrote a couple letters of the New Testament, and today we get to the other in the series, Friends, Brothers, and Others. Today we're going to look at the book of Hebrews which is interesting and unique for several reasons that we'll examine today. One of which is we don't really know who wrote it. That's why it's other in this series title. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. A lot of scholars have believed for a long time it was Paul. Um, Although in every other letter he wrote in the New Testament, he names himself in the letter. The author does not name himself in in this letter. Uh, Also, the way it's composed is You could say it's similar to how Paul would write, but there's so many unique factors to it. It doesn't quite, it's not a slam dunk that Paul would have written this based on how it's configured and even some of the content in it. Uh, It it could possibly be an associate of Paul, so uh, maybe Apollos, who Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, could have been the author of this uh, work of Hebrews. Uh, It could be uh, someone like Silas or Barnabas that traveled with Paul to where it's similar sounding to Paul, but not quite. That might explain why it is, but that's that's what we know. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, We know it was written near the middle to the end of the first century. Uh, And what we what is unique about this book is that it is the most Old Testament feeling of all the New Testament books. And that's by design. The content of Hebrews is to connect the reader to Old Testament themes and bring it into connecting it to Jesus. That's the whole point, the whole theme of this book, as we'll explore the main, really, themes of this book today. And it's, it's interesting to consider, we, we sometimes maybe forget about this, maybe I, I take it for granted, that Christianity is originally an offshoot of Judaism. So this connection here really brings that point home that the original author and the original reader in the first, maybe second century of this would have been a Jewish Christian or someone who has grown and raised in Judaism who has then put their faith in Christ as the Messiah, which is the differentiating factor, one of the few between Judaism and Christianity. So it's there was a lot of blending the first two to three hundred years. It's not just Judaism has seemed so separate to Christianity in a lot of ways. We see similarities in them, but we see how they're so different. But things are getting formed and worked out while this is being written. And so the author is, is showing us how they are connected. And what it could, you could view Hebrews in one of two ways. We'll get into the content in a second, but some more background. You could view this book in one of two different ways. One, since it is very Jewish, and very Old Testamenty, you could see this as almost an evangelistic plea to Jews apart from Christ to put their faith in Christ. The author's connecting all these major dots of their religion and saying, all of this was always about Jesus. 
So it's not really as separate as even we might think it is today. Well, that wasn't the intention of it. And so he's maybe, or she, it's possible a woman wrote this too. So if I say he on the author, it's just a generic he, okay? Um, It could be that it's a plea to Jews to put their faith in Christ. Or, but maybe is more likely, is that Hebrews could be seen as a plea to these Jewish Christians who are getting pulled back into Judaism apart from Christ. Because that's a kind of a leap for, for the people in the first and second century. Thousands of years of history and teaching that I've learned and grown up in, that's all I know. And now you're saying that all of this that I learned was about this person that the leadership seems to reject. But yet the whole point of what you're saying is to put my faith completely in him. So that's a stretch for them. That's a big thing that they had to deal with. And so a lot of them have been pulled back into their former Judaism. And so the author here could be saying, uh, no, it is Jesus. That's what all this is about. So my favorite TV show, a big switch here, my favorite TV show, if anybody knows me, is what? The Office. I even have my socks to prove it right today. (laughs) I wore them on purpose. So it's one of those shows you don't have to think. You can watch it and just not even think about what's going on, which I like. Uh, I won't tell you how many times I've watched the shows or how many, and we still watch it all the time. It's actually one of Kim's favorite shows now, too, for unrelated reasons, because she gets massages while while I watch The Office, which is great for her. Um, So I just love this show. And so today's theme or title uh, is just so near and dear to my heart, because today we're going to talk about The Offices. So what Hebrews does when it connects the kind of the Old and New Testament here, the way of thinking about religion, is it talks about the three major offices that we find in the Old Testament. The three major categories of leadership in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews, as we'll see today, is going to show us Jesus fulfills all three of them. And he exceeds anyone who ever had before him fulfilled those offices. That's the whole point of really the whole book of Hebrews, as we'll see today. Jesus fulfills and exceeds all three of these offices. There is quite a bit to get through, even though it's a simple idea, but there's so much to it. And I've already pared this down. This would have taken me about two hours to get through about five days ago, okay? And so I thought, well, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want, so it's got pared down, 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 down. There's just so much here, but we're going to work through today these three offices that Jesus fulfills and exceeds. The first of which is prophet. The first major office or role that we see in the Old Testament is that of prophet. And here's what Hebrews uh, says about this office. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the author writes this, And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger, that's what we're going to focus on, and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. This office of the prophet is possibly the most unique of all the three that we'll talk about today. And that's because there's no line of succession with the prophets, like a, like a king would have a successor. You know, their offspring is the next one. That's not how prophets worked. There's no election to vote for prophet of the country. So if they had a midterm election coming up next week, you're not going to find the office of prophet on the ballot. That's not how this worked. The people didn't choose it. They didn't vote for it. There wasn't a line of succession. Basically, God just spoke to random people and gave them words for the nation. And the prophet would speak to the people on behalf of God. In that way, he's a bit of a go-between, as we'll see all three of these offices really are. 
And sometimes, there were, as we've talked about the prophets earlier this year, sometimes they would give a judgment or a warning or remind the people of God's promises. There were different words that they gave, but they all came from God through this prophet. Uh, they would proclaim or predict events at certain times, and many times their, their ministry, if you will, was confirmed by supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles. So just a few quick examples of this. So we have the prophet Elijah, who in 1 Kings said, God told me to tell you it will not rain until I say so. And you go three years with not a drop of moisture coming from the sky until Elijah said, it's time, and then it just whooshed. This is the same prophet that as a sign of his ministry from God called fire, literal fire from heaven to burn a sacrifice on an altar on a mountaintop. You have his successor, Elisha, who they're not related. Their names are similar, but they're not related. It's not like his cousin or his brother or his son. Elisha follows him, and he performs even more miraculous signs than even Elijah did. He brought literal dead people back to life. You have the prophets like Hosea who did some strange things, kind of eccentric. We mentioned him earlier in the year. God told him to marry a prostitute. To his, for his life to be an example of how Israel had strayed from God. God used him in strange ways, but in powerful ways. You have someone like Daniel, who even in exile in Babylon was used by God. He interpreted uh, dreams. He prophesied the rise and fall of many kings and leaders. And then as a supernatural sign, a few of them, uh, one of them being the famous one of being saved from the lions in the lion's den. So God confirmed his call to these prophets. But all of those were kind of came after who was, uh, Hebrew says, is the major numero uno prophet, and that is Moses. Which you may not think of Moses. I, he doesn't really fit the mold of the later prophets, but he's kind of the first one, the first of his kind. Uh, he had signs like the burning bush where God called him. Uh, God, you, you know, turned his staff into a snake as a supernatural sign of God working through him. Uh, through him came these ten plagues, all in an effort to speak God's message to Pharaoh to let God's people go, to release them from slavery. And then he kind of saved the best for last, where the Red Sea parted when Moses held his staff over the water. The waters parted, and the people walked out on dry land. And then as far as what Moses spoke in terms of a prophet, it would be the law. God gave his law through Moses. Even when you read Old and New Testament, talk about the law of Moses, because that was his major claim to fame here. It's a pretty big one. When God uses you to tell all of the, how the, the civilization is supposed to work, it's a pretty big deal. So he's a pretty important guy. But the prophet overall was unique, powerful, and very influential, no matter if it was Moses or whoever came after him to fill this office. But here's what Hebrews, still chapter 3 of Hebrews, says about Jesus fulfilling this office of prophet. Hebrews 3, verse 3, But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. And this is a running theme throughout this entire book of Hebrews, is that the offices that Jesus that he filled, he is greater than anyone that came before him. 
Even those who would come after him in some of these roles, he is supreme. He is greater than even them. All of them pointed to him, and he perfected each of them. So it even uses his example. Moses was a great servant in God's house. He's so revered, kind of like Moses and Abraham, kind of number one, A and, a and B there uh, for the Jewish people. Moses was simply a servant in God's house, but Hebrews says Jesus built the house. So he's greater than Moses because Moses was only pointing to who Jesus would be and what he would do. Now, he is a prophet. Jesus fills that role of prophet, as we'll see here in a minute, but he's much more than that. And eventually, his own disciples noticed this. They saw this. A very famous passage in Matthew 16. Let's look at it for just a second. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So the people looking at Jesus would have immediately seen him as a prophet. Now, even the religious leaders who had him crucified would have seen him maybe in that term, but he went too far for them. He exceeded the role of prophet in their eyes, and so he blasphemed God and claiming to be divine, so they had to get rid of him. So he was still seeing, he checked all the boxes that we've already described. He spoke powerfully to the people. In the eyes of some, he was a bit eccentric. He's, he's a different kind of guy. He, he doesn't really fit the mold of maybe other prophets, but, or maybe he does because he's a bit eccentric. And he spoke on behalf of God as the other prophets before him did, but really on steroids. So when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, what you're going to notice is Jesus quotes the Old Testament law of Moses, the Old Testament prophets. And here, but here's what he'll do. He'll say, you have heard it said, dot, 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 whatever the law says. But then what does he do? He says, but I tell you, dot, dot, dot. He takes that law further or he kind of does a 20-degree angle on it or he twists it in a certain way that makes the people wonder, wait, you, the law says this, but you say this. I see the similarity, but I also see a distinction. What's the deal? So Jesus spoke on behalf of God, but on steroids, even to the extent, as we'll see in a second, that people around him were like, where does he get this authority from? Who, who, who died and made him God? You're like, well, spoiler alert, you know. So, but he, he does, he speaks with authority that even the great prophets of old didn't even have. He, he did something unique to that. And in fitting the bill of the prophets, he spoke out against the corruption of the religious leaders of his day. He's not unique in that. Other prophets did that. His cousin John that he already referenced did the same thing. That's why he got his head chopped off. That's part of the reason that Jesus was crucified, as he spoke out against the corrupt, hypocritical religious leaders. But he was more than a prophet. And Peter was kind of the first to see, maybe not to see, but the first to openly admit this. Because remember, when he does, Jesus says, God revealed this to you. Like, 
no one else has told you. Like maybe you've been talking about it. Maybe you've been, what's, what's the deal with this guy? You know, this is our leader. This is our guy. This is our, you know, this is Jesus. But there's something about this, about this man. But he's the first one to say it out loud, that he believed he was the Messiah and the Son of God. What's also unique about Jesus as prophet is that he didn't just prophesy, but he fulfilled his own prophecies. And there's, there's this idea maybe in sports, maybe a couple weeks ago when you watched the Chiefs-Bills game. Sorry to bring this up. I know it's a sore spot, but this is a good part of the game, okay? Right before halftime, Harrison Butker gets up to kick a, what, will, what would be the all-time longest field goal in Chiefs history. But if you remember what he did, he, he was so confident in this going in that he kicks the ball. The ball's in the air, still traveling toward the goalpost, and he turns his back to celebrate that the ball's already in. I mean... That's gutsy. You got to be so good to do that. It's like Steph Curry, when he shoots threes in the NBA, he does that almost once a game. He'll shoot the three, barely left his hand, and he'll be shaking the dude's hand on the sideline because he knows it's going to go in. Jesus does the same thing over and over and over again. He calls his shot because he knows he's going to make it. At some point, we don't really know quite when. We know by the time he was 12 in the temple, he sort of had this idea that he already knew who he was. He already knew what his, his plan, his goal, what the whole point of his life was going to be. And certainly by the time his ministry starts, when he's 30, he knows everything is going to go exactly as it's supposed to go because I'm on a supernatural mission. So he does this. And in John 2, there's this famous scene where there's these money changers in the temple. They're exchanging money. They're making money. They're doing business in the temple courts. And Jesus does not appreciate this at all. So he drives them out, you know, pushes the tables over, whips the animals out, and clears the temple out. Right after he does this, here's what John writes. John 2, verse 17. Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it, like the other prophets, right, had signs. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's shooting his shot. What, they exclaimed? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But John gives us this extra information. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said, which is, again, the whole point of Hebrews. Remember the scriptures and what Jesus had said. They go together. They're designed to go together. They are supposed to go together. So Jesus made the ultimate prophecy here in the public square for all to hear him. Kill me and I'll come back. It's like the Terminator, okay? Kill me and I'll be back. That's what he said. And not only did he kick the 62-yard field goal, but while it's in the air, he turns his back because he knows he's going to do it, and he did it. He followed through on this guarantee, this promise. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. He did it. And not just this, that's the greatest of all miracles is for a man to come back from the dead, okay? Uh, but everything he did, everything he said, every part of his life did this over and over and over and over again. So scholars estimate that somewhere, depending on how picky you want to get, there are somewhere between 320 and 350 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. To give you an idea of how impossible that is, 
they, they kind of dumb it down for us here. The odds of one person fulfilling even 50, which is a lot, but we're talking about one-sixth, one-seventh of all of these that Jesus fulfilled. Just the odds of one person fulfilling all, just 50 of these Old Testament prophecies is one in 10 to the 157th power. So buy a lottery ticket, right? <laughs> Those are not good odds, so actually don't buy a lottery ticket. One in 10 with 157 zeros after that to fulfill less than one-seventh of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. To say that's impossible is an understatement. To say that that's supernatural is an understatement. To say that Jesus did something that no one else could do is exactly the point. He did what no one else could do because he was God come to earth in human form. Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than a prophet. He is the Messiah and the Son of God. Moses was a, was a good servant in the house. He gave prophecy. He spoke God's word. The prophets that came after him did a great job. They were good servants, but Jesus fulfilled and exceeded all of them. The prophets made these predictions and prophecies, but they were all fulfilled in, through, and by Jesus himself. He is much more than a prophet. So let's move on to the second office here, and that is the office of priest, the office of priest. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 5 here for a second to look at maybe some, a job description, if you will, of what the Old Testament priest would do. So it says this, every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins, and he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people, thanks a lot. Uh, because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work just as Aaron was. So we look at this job description of the priest in the Old Testament, and they had really two main functions. They represent and they present. They represent and they present. So they represent God to the people. They are this supernatural, spiritual go-between. And then they also do the opposite. They represent the people to God. And so they, there is this go-between where this is a unique, a very unique office as well. Uh, the, the, they're going to be highly educated, probably one of the few literate people in the culture, they're going to be highly specialized in what they do. They are called and set apart. Really, when you look at it, there's only one tribe in Israel, the, the tribe of Levi, who become the priests. It's, it's so specialized. It's not just anybody from anywhere, but this, we narrow it down. The only people, certain people from this one tribe can even qualify to become the priests of the Old Testament. So they're highly educated, highly specialized to represent God to the people and the people to God. And then they present, they present sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, animal sacrifices. So if you're a PETA person, just plug your ears for a second. You know, animals are very, if you nice and fluffy, they're going to get slaughtered here for the next few minutes, all right? So that's the whole point. What's, that, that's what, like we come into worship and we think, oh, it's singing and music, it's prayer. Like Old Testament worship is a bloody mess. You know, it's like animals on an altar, body parts everywhere, blood sprinkled everywhere. It's going to smell. It's going to be weird. So basically a priest is, you know, a, a religious butcher and grill master. I mean, that's basically what an Old Testament priest is. Uh, sign me up, I guess. I don't know if I want to do that or not. But the whole point of presenting this to God is animals are slaughtered, blood is sprinkled, and that's, that's what the office of priest did. 
And while it's revered, while it's important, there were limitations to the priesthood and limitations for priests. Let's look at it. Hebrews 9. I know we're going everywhere in Hebrews today, um, but just bear with me. Hopefully you've written these down if you can't keep up, and maybe you can go back over it this week. But Hebrews 9, 6 through 8, show us the limitations that priests would have. It says, when these things were all in place, it talks about the, the temple and the tabernacle and everything that's done for worship. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room of the temple as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So there are multiple priests offering multiple sacrifices. It's not just one priest. There is one high priest over all the lower priests, but they would be offering sacrifice in the temple nonstop every day for all the sins of the people. But on, this, this talks about one day a year. It's called Yom Kippur, and the Jewish calendar was just celebrated like a month ago. It's their most holy day where the high priest on this only one day could enter what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies, which is separated by this huge curtain. So there's limitations to this connection with God here. Only one person on one day a year could enter this room where God's presence dwelled. And he could only enter if he had gone through all of these cleansing rituals outwardly and after he'd offered sacrifices for his sin inwardly. And there are legends you may have heard before that if the wrong person entered, uh, well, we know that if the wrong person entered this room ever, they're struck dead. If anyone besides the high priest ever entered that room, they're struck dead. If even the high priest enters this room on any day other than the, the Yom Kippur, they're struck dead. If the priest is not completely cleansed inside and out and attempts to enter, even on this one day, they are knocked down dead. So there's, a, there's limits, right, to this relationship with God thing that we see in the Old Testament law. There's limitations even for the top of the top of the religious people in the society. So there are limits to what the high priest can do, even someone on that sort of scale religiously. And what Jesus did, though, is he fulfilled the role of this high priest without any of the limitations. That's what's unique and fascinating about Jesus here. And the important distinction, the reason there's no limitations on him, is because he is sinless. He is spotless. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, it says, So then since we have a great high priest, great is there for a reason, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And then skip down to Hebrews 7, 26, the same idea here. It says, He is the kind of high priest we need. Why? Because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. So the priests are revered. The high priest is revered, but they're still sinful people. They're still fallen, broken people. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well, right? We, we read that. Even before they could offer the Yom Kippur, the one sacrifice of that day for the whole nation, the priest has to offer something for himself to cleanse him from his sin. But Jesus is our great high priest because sin is not a thing that he did. 
Now, it's important to note he was tempted in every way, it says, just like we are yet without sin. So Jesus understands what temptation feels like. And the distinction must be made that temptation does not equal sin, right? This desire or thought or compulsion I might have to do the wrong thing, that is not sinful. It's when I go past that compulsion and that desire to do the wrong thing when it becomes sin. So Jesus had, he wrestled. He, he was, and it's not just a temptation with the devil, you know, all, like regularly in every way as we are yet without sin. That's why he's greater. He didn't have to make sacrifices for himself. That wasn't necessary. But he did have to offer sacrifices. So if we're talking about Jesus fulfilling this office, part of that role is to present these sacrifices to God. And Hebrews 8 verse 3 tells us that. It says, every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices. Our high priest must make an offering too. But when you look at the life of Jesus, you read the Gospels, you're like, okay, I don't remember him going into the temple and slaughtering animals. I don't really recall a time where he said, I'm the high priest now, and I'm going to take it. Like, he didn't do that. But he's required to fulfill this role, as we're claiming that he did, he does. He's got he's to offer a sacrifice. So what gives? Go back to Hebrews 7, verse 27. It says this, Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus, here's the key, Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. This is, again, what differentiates and elevates Jesus as our great high priest is that he didn't just offer sacrifices to fulfill that role, but he himself was the sacrifice that he offered. He fulfills both the offering and the one giving the offering simultaneously on the cross. And it says once and for all, so hear this, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is enough for your sin. It is sufficient for your sin. You may have a laundry list of things that you've done in your life. You may have a ton of regrets. You may have been a super sinful person, right? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient, Hebrews says, once and for all. One time for everyone, for every sin, every sinner. It is sufficient. It is enough. His sacrifice is enough. And not just for you, but for everyone, even your neighbor, right? Even that sin, the most sinful person who ever existed, if they did or had put faith in Jesus as their sacrifice, it would have been sufficient for their sin. It's sufficient. It's enough. But there's one more thing, and we'll get off this and get to the last one really quick. The, the, the idea of the priest, again, we talked about the limitations. There's one more limitation that Jesus overcomes, and that is our distance in our relationship with God. Even the priests, there's that curtain that blocked them off only for one day a year. The other priests never get in there to, to sense God's full, complete presence. But Jesus, he gave us this access to God through his death on the cross. So as we read in Matthew 27, this is Jesus on the cross. He's breathing his last breath, and then something amazing happens that changes everything. It says this, Then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. So Jesus is now dead on the cross. Matthew 27, 51. At that moment... The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart. 
Now, you might think, oh, no, that's not good. They're going to have to redo the, the curtain, and this is terrible. This is bad. What are the ramifications of this moment, or why does this even matter? Hebrews gives us the answer. Hebrews 10, 19. The author says this, and so, hear this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water." The great high priest on the cross offering himself as a sacrifice, get this, gives you direct access to God. No more curtain keeping you out. No more room that only one person, one day a year, if they're perfect inside and out, can access God's presence. Jesus on the cross gives you direct access to God. Jesus is the only go-between we need to get directly to God. You don't, need, you don't need me to get you there. I can't do that. You don't need any other person, any other priest, any other tradition to get you there. You can go directly there because of the sacrifice of the great high priest of himself on the cross. You have direct, unfiltered access to God himself. That is not a small thing. It's a big thing. You don't need these other rules, regulations, traditions. You don't have to follow these steps. Believe on Jesus, access to God granted. You've unlocked the master level. That's another gaming thing, I guess, right? You've unlocked everything there is. There's nothing greater than access to God, is there? Direct, unfiltered, perfect access to him any time of day, 24-7, 365, even on leap day. You know, he doesn't take a day off for leap. Like all the time, every day, access to him. That's what our high priest does. We are new without condemnation. We can go to him to experience this life in Christ. Here's the last thing, and it's the shortest one, so never fear, okay? The third office that Jesus fulfilled perfectly, completely, and fully is that of king. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Now, king was, it's the newest of the three offices in the, in the Old Testament because for a couple hundred years, there was no earthly king. That's the key word, earthly king. That's the whole point, is God was always their king. He always declared he's ruling over them, he's leading them, he's guiding them, he is their king. Eventually, the people asked for a king. They got what they asked for, and we'll talk about it in a minute. God warned them, you don't really want this. You ever been there before? Maybe with, with your parents or with your kids or with God. He'll give you what you want sometimes, even if it's not the best thing for you. And then you got to live with that, right? But that's what the king did. He was the judicial leader, the military leader, the economic and social engine of the country. It's a powerful position because as the king goes, so goes the nation. So when the king was serving God, following God, the country prospered. When the king strayed from God, the country failed. We see this over and over and over again throughout the, the different kingdoms of Israel. But Jesus fulfills this role and exceeds all who came before him. Let's look again at a couple of verses here from Hebrews as we begin to wrap it up. Hebrews 8, verse 1. It says, here is the main point. We have a high priest. We already talked about that, right? We have a high priest. But this high priest sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. 
But wait, high priests don't do that. High priests don't sit next to the king. The high priest is the religious leader, not the governmental power. They're, they're disconnected in the Old Testament law. There's, they don't, it's not one person serving both, but he says our high priest is sitting beside the throne in a place of honor. That's because he is prophet, priest, and king simultaneously. He is also the king while being the priest and the prophet. And then Hebrews, very beginning, Hebrews 1, verse 8, uh, this is actually a quote from Psalm 45. It says this, But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, there's so much there. There's a sermon in that, those like eight words right there, okay? To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. So Jesus has made the kingdom come full circle. Again, at the beginning, God was king. He was in charge. It was literally a theocracy, right? And then human kings come in, mess everything up. But now Jesus is once again king. And since he is God, then once again, God is now king. One more verse as we close, and that's uh, Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10. Again, a lot here to get through. So you might want to take some time this week to go back over these and read them. Think about them this week about how... Uh, Jesus fulfills these. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10 tells us this amazing thing about Jesus as our king. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. That's from Psalm 8. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom And through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Jesus is the perfect leader, the perfect king. Now, I know some good leaders. I don't know any perfect leaders, right? I know some amazing leaders that lead leaders, and they're not perfect, right? Jesus is the perfect leader. And that was the original argument that God made against an earthly king for Israel. Hey, I'm your king. I'm perfect. This is going to work out great. This is, what we, this is really what you want. You don't want what you think you want. You still want me in charge. But the people said, no, we don't want you in charge. We want other people in charge. We want this person we can look to and say, look how strong they are. Look how smart they are. Look how powerful they are. And God's like, they're going to mess it all up. Again, gave them what they wanted, and he was right because he's God. (laughs) The kings messed everything up. Literal civil war broke out because God wasn't completely in charge. The king was in charge, but Jesus is the perfect king. We've already talked about he's sinless, so that's a pretty good reason that he's perfect. He's sinless. Everything he does comes from a pure motive. He leads perfectly. He gives willingly. um, He's obedient even unto death. That's the whole point of the cross. He does the perfect will of the Father, and he serves everyone equally. He is fit to bring us into our salvation, the author here says, because he is our salvation and he is our king. So I hope today, as we've gone through a lot here, that you've seen the the power, the wisdom, the majesty of who Jesus is, because he fulfills everything about him that was said from long ago. He fulfills all of the roles as our eternal prophet, as our great high priest, and as our perfect king. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray. God, we thank you as we always do 
for your son Jesus. We thank you that he is not just a prophet, but that he fulfills that role and exceeds that role. He's the ultimate fulfillment of all prophecy. He's not just a priest, but he's a perfect, sinless, limitless, great high priest who is also the perfect, sinless, limitless sacrifice as he offers himself for our sin. He's not just a a king, but he is a mighty king. He is king of kings. He is the perfect leader, the perfect king. And so my prayer is that as prophet, we would allow Jesus to speak into our lives, that we would read his words, hear his words, and then follow his words, because we know it's for our good. As our high priest, may we see his sacrifice as sufficient. We don't have to worry and wonder about our salvation. We've put our faith in the high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice that is sufficient for our sin. And then as our king, may we submit to this ultimate king. May we worship this king for all that he is, for who he is. Not just for what he does, but for who he is. May, you, may Jesus truly be in charge of our lives. May he truly have control. May we give everything over to him as he desires and as is best for us. May we not withhold certain parts of our lives or certain things about us back from him, but may we lovingly submit to him, give everything over to our perfect king. Help us to see Jesus in this way, in these offices, as serving us as prophet, priest, and king. And it'll change everything about the way we see life, the way we see faith, as we view Jesus in these powerful ways. So I pray your blessing upon all of us today as we go our separate ways. Give us a great rest of our weekend and bring us back next time ready for more of you in Jesus' name. Amen.